brothers and sisters in the struggle for human dignity and freedom. I am here to represent the struggle that has gone on for 300 or more years, a struggle to be recognized as citizens in a country in which we were born. This is Ella's Voice, the official podcast of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Named after the civil rights hero Ella Baker, we organize with black, brown, and low-income people to build power and prosperity in our communities. My name is James King. I'm the state campaigner at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. It's April 14th. Like many people across the country, I'm sheltering in place as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to grow. This podcast is a way for us at the Ella Baker Center to stay in touch and keep our communities informed because during a crisis like this, we need to fight for justice more than ever. advocate for reform of our criminal justice system and laid out uh, new benchmarks of expectation in my January On March 24th, California Governor Gavin Newsom posted a Facebook live stream on the state responses to the COVID-19 outbreak. During the update, he took a few minutes to state that despite the warnings from healthcare professionals and calls to dramatically decrease California's prison population, I have no interest in, I want to make this crystal clear, in releasing violent criminals from our system. I was very shocked by that remark as as a response to the question that the reporter asked. Um, I had known Governor Gavin Newsom is a person who visited San Quentin, the prison that I had been, um, that I had lived at for about five or six years. I'd known him as a person who had visited that prison on multiple occasions, him and his wife, and saw him as a, as a, not only an ally, but a person who, who really understood that um, people change, that rehabilitation is possible, and that it's more important to look at and assess our incarceration numbers by who people are today than who they were at the time that they committed their crime. And and I don't know if I was perhaps conflating Governor Newsom and Governor Jerry Brown, his predecessor, but I'd read in an interview like a, a year before where Governor Jerry Brown had said, There are literally thousands of people who have turned their lives around and are being kept in cages for no legitimate reason other than that's the law in the state of California. So my belief or or perspective was that Governor Newsom held similar beliefs about about incarceration. 
that night, I just I continued to sit with the, the comments that he made. And one of my coping skills is to write. So because I couldn't really get it out of my mind I, and I was so mindful of the people that I had left behind in prison, I wrote a draft of the op-ed that was eventually published on March 30th. My motivation for writing it initially was just to um, clarify my thoughts on the topic, just to to vent, really, to say that my friends, my loved ones, the people that I just left behind just a few months prior, it frustrated me to think that they might um, die in prison because of violent criminal rhetoric. I immediately tied it to the, the tough on crime rhetoric from the 80s and the 90s. I've always thought that so much of that that rhetoric and that language was so racially tinged and racially biased and so racially coded that um, it disproportionately affected Black people, Latinx people, and people from various marginalized communities. Simple fact of the matter is, um, where I grew up, if you wore your clothes a certain way, if you hung out with your classmates, if there were four or five of you hanging out, you were more, much more likely to be considered to be a gang member. And you would have to, and if you got labeled it as a gang member, there was no due process. It was really hard to, to get that label off of you. That label would then follow you if you went through the court process. The reason why it's so problematic is because, and I know this from my time on the inside, the state's methodology for determining who is violent currently and who is not is deeply flawed. There's a penal code provision called Penal Code 667.5, which lists violent offenders and lists violent crimes. And if you're sentenced under one of those violent crimes, then you are for the entirety of your time that you are in state custody, you are a violent offender. It doesn't matter if this was a one-time incident. It doesn't matter if this occurred 40 years ago and you have not exhibited any violent behavior since. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that what your original sentence said. Furthermore, I would add that um, CDCR itself, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, does assessments on people to determine who is uh, at a low, moderate, or high risk for violence. And internally, the vast majority of people are rated low risk for violence. Science teaches us that, that people are less likely to commit violent acts the older they get. So starting around age 35 and up, your your propensity for violence or a person's uh, um, propensity for violence decreases dramatically. Um, the people we are talking about, those who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, who have done, who have spent decades behind bars are and have been the lowest risk of, of violence that CDCR houses. This can be found in, in CDCR's own data. So to hear the governor say, we're not gonna release violent criminals when all of the facts say that the people that we that are most vulnerable, the people that we are advocating to see released are not violent at all, um, 
was extremely troubling for me. In the 80s and 90s, we categorized people as violent based upon our own biases as a nation and based upon models and fears that we had around black and brown people. And then those same black and brown people had to carry those that that label of being violent. And it continues to hold them back until this day. One other thing I, I would add about why it's important to distinguish between people who were sentenced for a violent crime and are not violent today is because not only are those typically the most vulnerable people in prison, they're the older people with the most um, health problems, but also there's no way to create social distancing in prison without addressing that population. Most of the reforms that have happened over the last 12 years in in this state's criminal justice reform and in this nation's criminal justice reform have addressed the nonviolent, non-serious, the so-called low-hanging fruit and has created um, many avenues for, for people to be diverted from the prison system if, you're, if you fall into those various categories. And that's great. We're all for people being diverted from the prison system. But the, the category of people that have been left behind are those who have been convicted of violent crimes yet have not committed any violence since then. In my op-ed, I mentioned that I've only been home about four months. And it also, in, in the opening paragraph, I say, well, I'm someone that Governor Newsom would categorize, would have categorized as a violent offender. The truth is, in 2004, I was arrested for a violent crime. Fast forward 15 years later, Governor Jerry Brown examined my, my record and my conduct in prison. And I was one of hundreds of people whose sentence that he chose to commute um, and offer clemency to based upon my conduct. One thing that that I say and many others who were also commuted is um, I was not an exception. I was the reflection. The reason I was in position to have such exceptional conduct was because of people older than me who who taught me how to resolve conflicts in my life, who, who taught me how to cope with emotional turmoil and, and become a more positive contributing member to community. Yeah, as, as I was writing um, the night of, of Governor Newsom's press conference, um, I couldn't help thinking about literally dozens of people I know who, who are in their late 60s and early 70s who were who I'm concerned about and who would just outraged me that anyone would think of or classify as a violent criminal in this day and age. Um, I chose to write about Freddie Cole and Amir Shabazz for a couple of reasons. Um, one being very practical that I had an opportunity to connect with them and, and receive their approval. I wanted to make sure that their story, that if I told their story, that they would be okay with it. But then the, the second part of, of it is um, 
These are two gentlemen that I know very well who are so representative of thousands of others who are aging in prison. Um, I know these guys intimately. I, I've lived in buildings with them for well over a decade. And um, I know their character. I, I, I know how they deal with conflict, adversity, um, how they uh, contribute to community on the inside. And so it was important for me to lift them up, not as exceptions, but as examples of, of what the elderly community is like in prison today and people who are, are well capable of coming home immediately. I first met Freddie Cole in 2006 at California State Prison, Lancaster, which is a maximum security prison down in the Los Angeles area when he was a spry, young 65-year-old. Um, we were part of the same Bible study. And so every Saturday, we would go out to the yard and sit um, for hours. And because there wasn't a lot of, well, most of the the picnic benches and things of that nature were, were claimed, we would go and sit in the grass. And at that time, like he always had, he didn't talk a lot, but he always had insight, wisdom to share. And it was always right on point. And the thing about Freddie and I is we started at that maximum security prison together. And then a few Maybe six months after I met him, he transferred to a level three, a medium security prison. A few months later, I followed him there. We spent about four years at that prison together. Then I transferred to a level two, uh, lower level security prison. Um, a few months after that, he followed me to that prison. So as I was preparing to release about four months ago, we joked a lot about the fact that we've been following each other for over 10 years and we need to continue to keep the trend going. I'm expecting him to come home any day. <laughs> um, the truth of the matter though is he's, he's 79 now and last year, 2019, was a very difficult year for him related to heart problems. 2016, he, he had a pacemaker installed and last year, there was just a real struggle figuring out what the calibration could be or should be. Um, sometimes the charges were, were too strong. Sometimes they were too weak. And um, he was hospitalized several times last year. We were all extremely concerned for his safety. It had gotten to the point where he could not... Um, walk from his cell to his job assignment in education without having to stop to rest four or five times. And the type of person he is, he refused to stop working. He didn't want to sit in the cell. He felt that that would be even more uh, dangerous for him. And um, he was resistant to being transferred to a, a more secure medical facility because every, all of his loved ones on the inside were at that prison and he wanted to stay with us. Um, towards the end of 2019, 
they finally got the calibration or whatever it was on his pacemaker correct and his health started improving again. I talked to him this morning and, and he mentioned that his health for the most is better, but he has been feeling lightheaded lately and having some shortness of breath. Um, he's doing his best to socially distance, but the lure of being able to get on, on the phone and talk to his loved ones and his family um, and have that human connection is always strong. So I have been and remain very concerned for his safety. I first met Amir Shabazz in 2006 at California State Prison, Lancaster as well. Amir was in his mid-50s at the time. He's um, 70 now. And he is like a, a, a um, very special uncle to me. We were at the, the level four maximum security prison together. We separated for about four years because we went to different medium security prisons. And then we reunited at San Quentin where we were in the same building. Um, and we just used to hang out five times to hang out every day, if not several times a week. Um, we're both super passionate Lakers fans. We both love to watch Survivor and um, we're both political junkies. One thing I hadn't known during the years that Shabazz and I were at different prisons, he'd contracted Valley Fever and um, he wound up spending a lot of time in the hospital, lost a lot of weight. And um, from what I hear, he almost died. Um, but he's a fighter. He's a very strong individual and he battled back. Um, and he's doing much better now. His immune system, though, will never be the same. One thing that that both Freddie and Shabazz have in common is um, they are, are incredibly generous, kind um, individuals. Both of them um, go the extra mile to mentor younger people who are coming into the prison to help them try to make sense of what it's like to be incarcerated and to understand the different peer pressures that can come your way and, and try to be support so that people can make better decisions. Like often in prison, uh, when it comes to making a good decision, the best thing is just someone saying it's okay to make that decision. And they are both guys who are, are always ready to step up just to be, to provide that affirmation for people, whether they've known them briefly or, or for years. It's important that we recognize that, that um, though there's a fear around releasing people into society, that fear is not, does not have much to do with that, that individual nine times out of 10 whom we've never met. Um, it says just more about our biases and our imagination and the assumptions that we make than it does about those those people themselves. And I would encourage everyone not to let your biases, your fears, your assumptions uh, get in the way of jeopardizing someone's actual safety. In this state, 
we are primarily expediting releases through the commutation process, the clemency process. We've been doing that for about two or three years now. And, but we're doing it on a very small scale. We can definitely do more. And there are thousands of people who are equally deserving, if not more deserving than I was and others like me. Make no mistake about it, in this current health crisis, um, prisons are a very dangerous place to be. Everyone is, for the most part, in, in cells or in dorms that are horribly overcrowded. Social distancing, physical distancing is, is not possible. And so much of prison life and culture is based off of community and, and, and sharing. One thing that I think a lot of people lose sight of is, like in prison, you have some people who make a wage. Majority of people do not work. Some people who have support from home. Others do not. And people share and, and provide for one another and come together in order to meet everyone's needs. So many people rely upon social solidarity in prison that... Um, even if physical distancing were 100% possible, there would still be that, that component and that factor. Prisons are out of sight, out of mind in, in, in many cases. So we need to blow, blow it up on social media. We need to be contacting our local legislators and, and policy members uh, um, and just looking to connect and find various direct ways to support So that's why I felt compelled to write to Governor Newsom. You can read my piece entitled, A Plea to Governor Newsom, Don't Abandon Elderly Incarcerated People to Die from COVID-19 at www.theappeal.org. If you are a person who is has capacity and would like to support people who are in, on the inside going through this process right now, maybe by writing, you can contact our policy director, Emily Harris. Her email is emily at ellabakercenter.org. And if you're a person who has a loved one on the inside that you're you're advocating to try to get home and, and you're trying to find the best avenue to support their expedited or accelerated release, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm at james at ellabakercenter.org. In our show notes, we'll have links. There's there's a Facebook campaign right now that is dedicated to getting people on the inside resources so that they can go to canteen or, or receive packages while they're sheltering in place. We also ask that everyone um, who is able to lift us up on social media, use the hashtag, hashtag free our elders, hashtag let them go. And you can also visit our website, Ella Baker Center website, which will have a lot more information about different organizations that are lifting up this work and ways that you can plug in to support as well. is a production of the Ella Baker Center in Oakland, California. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. 
To become a member of the Ella Baker Center and organize with us to win jobs, not jails, books, not bars, and health care, not handcuffs, go to ellabakercenter.org.